The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. So I've still got the monkey box, <clears throat> which means I'll sound a little bit croaky for this uh, episode. But uh, if you can handle that, we'll be fine. Well, it all depends on what kind of beverage you're using to help uh, deal with the monkey pox throat you've got. This is a Jura Scotch, J-U-R-A. It is called Superstition, and it is uh, trying to cut through the phlegm on the larynx, and it's doing a very good job so far. It's only taken 103 episodes, but I've finally realized the best solution for when you run halfway through a show and I'm already out of martini <laughs> is... Bring the shaker with you to the studio. <laughs> From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The sounds... <laughs> oh, jeez, medic! The sounds of Star Wars. While the internet loses its mind over Han Solo's appearance in the latest Star Wars teaser, we'll tell you the origins of the blaster sound and why Darth Vader is more in common with an air conditioner than you might think. Title is already handing out pink slips. We'll investigate how Jay-Z may be J-Zero in the streaming music business. The return of Guitar Hero. We'll look at the reboot of the millennial game as it ups its game. Plus, nine songs your parents definitely had sex to and one they definitely won't, David Hasselhoff's latest track. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Now, I know being a Star Trek fan, as opposed to a Trekkie... Uh, I'm looking at the lineup here, and I see that the first segment is all Star Wars, so this is all... <laughs> this is yours, Bunky. Well, no, I think you actually might get a kick out of this. Now, I, I, the, the trailer coming out, the second one in which we finally see Han Solo, this is now old news by this point, but I went down a really neat rabbit hole after watching the trailer. Oh, how's that? The sounds of Star Wars. Oh. Okay. As a radio guy, you appreciate the theater, the mind that comes with the Foley artist. Mm-hmm. And the Foley artist behind basically every Star Wars movie ever made has a large collection of videos on YouTube, little vignettes on the Star Wars channel. Uh, ben Burt is the guy's name, and he gives us a, a little peek behind the curtain in his studio at Sky Sound. Oh, uh, okay. The George. Lucas's place or X place or whatever. Right. George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch has its own audio division called Sky Sound. That lightsaber sound we all make, like you're a trekker. Mm. Clearly, you can make the lightsaber sound. <laughs> exactly. That sound Bert discovered while working as a projectionist at a movie theater. Okay, so where did it come from? The laser sword, which was Did he say sword? Tried to make <laughs> he did. They didn't even know it was a lightsaber at the time. I saw the Ralph McQuarrie art, and those pictures of Luke with a lightsaber, Vader with a lightsaber, and I, I could kind of hear it in my head. On the campus of USC, I was a projectionist, and when you turn the projectors on, they hummed. I thought that was kind of a magical musical sound, and I recorded that motor hum, and uh, later I added a buzzing sound from the back of my television set, and that became the basis for all the lightsabers.
Can you play those isolated sounds, like the movie projector? Yeah. This is the projector motor hum. And then this is the, the sound of the picture tube. Okay. The blend of those two is... is the basic bed that's under every lightsaber. My favorite part, though, is when he explains how they make the warble sound. Question really becomes, how do you make it sound like it's moving? Well, that's a different issue altogether. <laughs> Taking the steady state condition of the sound and then playing that over a speaker, just like we're listening in this room, and then making a new recording of it with another microphone and swinging the microphone around in front of the speaker produces a Doppler effect. Isn't that neat? That's really cool. It's, it's pretty low tech, actually. Surprisingly. And what amazed me the most was that Bert still has the original mint condition copies of the individual elements such that, you know, 30, 40 years later, he can pull in those individual elements to show us and let us hear how it actually came to be. So this is Star Wars, the Star Wars equivalent of the isolated tracks that we hear from songs on the Internet these days. Exactly. Uh, the funnier ones included um, the fact that they went to a, an old film set and talked to one of the original set designers to the 1931 film Frankenstein. Okay. And when the Emperor in Return of the Jedi zaps Luke with his hands, that's the sound of the machines from the 1931 film Frankenstein starting up. Really? Back on The Empire Strikes Back, I wanted to record sparks and artificial lightning and all of the things I used to see in the old Frankenstein movies. And I had tracked down the gentleman who built all of those props. His name was Ken Strickfadden. He had all the props from those movies. They were all functional. Amazing. I tried to go and record the sounds during the, uh, the first Star Wars movie, but he said no. And he hadn't been to the movies in a decade. Wow. So he was stunned when he saw the movie. We drove right back to his house in Santa Monica. He turned everything on and created sparks and noises. And fortunately, I had my recorder. And that was that all so cool. used in subsequent Star Wars films. Can you name one specific scene where you used, do you remember where you used it? Well, the Emperor firing bolts at Luke in the end of Jedi. A lot of that was the Frankenstein stuff. We're still using those recordings today. See, that's kind of a nice homage to, to, you know, science fiction of the past. I like that. Okay. They had a heck of a time finding the original guy and the original equipment. And once they did, they just recorded all this, brought it in, and, and there you go. But the one that was fascinating to me the most was the original sound of the Star Destroyer's engine. Okay, you're going to have to explain to me Star Destroyer. I don't recognize that. Those are those giant pie-shaped ships. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. That Darth Vader would, would be on. And the original mission was to go down to Cape Canaveral and get some footage, archival footage of rockets launching, because after all, this is a massive machine in space. You're going to need that kind of sound. And the sound just wasn't right. Wait, wait, wait. In space, there is no sound, but I understand what you're saying. Yes, you're going to have to suspend your disbelief on this. So White Sands missile range once, mm -hmm. and I was uh, had an appointment to record various military and scientific rockets taking off and and I was expecting to get these huge you know rumbling yeah. you know exciting 
uh, rocket engines, and they, they weren't all that great. They right. were sort of crackly, distorted sounding, right. poppy kind of sounds. They weren't, it didn't, it didn't kind of fit the, the Star Destroyer or something of that sort. I was back in the motel, and I went to bed, and I heard this great rumbling sound. Uh -huh. This is great. And I look all around, and it's the air conditioner is like broken or it's yeah. moving slightly. And <laughs> so I put the microphone on top of the air conditioning in direct contact with it. And I get this great rumbling sound, which then that ends up being the Star Destroyer. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, rather than yeah. the, object, you know, the, the, the object of the mission. <laughs> okay. And that was the basis for the Star Destroyer's engine as well. Man, that must have been, <laughs> that must have been a crappy hotel room. Exactly. Now, if you listen to the prequels and some of the monster sounds, the things flying around, penguin sex. No, seriously. Uh, you sent me out to go record at a uh, penguin uh, reserve. reserve. And I remember I went and recorded a bunch of penguin mating calls uh, down in Melbourne. Yeah. And then I went to the rainforest up in uh, Cairns. Uh, and recorded fruit bats, and, and some of them were fighting over a banana, and I remember coming into your office and you were mixing those together to become the Geonosians and the... Uh -huh. um, yeah, right. And the penguins and fruit bats. Penguins and pe penguin mating calls and fruit bats fighting over yeah. bananas. I mean, you had it all figured out from the I beginning, I knew that from right? the beginning. <laughs> I, I, that's, I had that figured out way ahead of time. We just was waiting for you to catch up. So he's got all of these different things. The, uh, the blaster sound that you hear, those are the guide wires that hold up those high-tension power lines, the, the big... And Antenna type. Yeah. Uh, the, all you did was whacked on the side of it with a wrench, and you got the underscore to the blaster sound. Yes, I, I've I've actually whacked one of those things, and I know exactly the sound you're talking about. So, while we're talking about the new movie coming out in in December, it's fascinating to know that all of the sounds that they used to build this t very 21st century reboot of Star Wars has its roots in 1977. Or 1931. All the way back to the film Frankenstein. The force is strong in my family. Wow. Okay, I like that. I may watch this movie now. Now you've seen the trailer, right? My father hasn't. I have it. My sister has it. You have that power, too. seen the trailer and uh, the internet melted down people lost their crap over this one and you know the when 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 Chewie and, and Han Solo uh, show up well you know everybody has a nerdgasm man I mean, in our shop work ground to a halt when Matt Padani I bet it did uh, posted this uh, to, to the newsroom and then of course uh, we got it on geeksandbeats.com productivity must have instantly dried up as we saw Chewie and Han for the first time <laughs> time now for geeks and beats updates 
London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We have still managed to convince people to join on to the world's worst intern program. This is absolutely amazing. I am very grateful for these people. I am now tapping them in for my own website, a journal of musical things, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, listen, I think that uh, we have discovered a, a new form of slavery, which seems to be serving us very well. <laughs> you see, you're confusing the interns with the actual writers on the big show. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Sorry. Right. That's it's, right. Uh, the world's worst intern program is the one in which you have to pay us to work on the show. And like real interns, you don't actually do anything to contribute to the show. Right. And it does make it the world's worst one because you pay us a dollar per episode, as Stefan Dubord has done. Ian Long actually opened his wallet even wider, uh, donating $2 per episode, courtesy of Patreon, which is the system we're using here. Uh, Randy Redekop is a, an intern this year. We've got Adam Day, uh, Bill French, Devin Arn opened his wallet so wide, he is now officially the co-producer of this episode because he donated 25 bucks. Wow. Uh-huh. So um, we must have a pretty fat bank account, considering that we're not really drawing from it. We're not drawing substantially from it at this point, and I think we will have enough to take those uh, writers, which we pay absolutely nothing for. Uh, they don't pay us. We don't pay them. Uh, get them uh, all liquored up one night once the patio season really comes in. Yeah, we'll wait until the weather warms up a little bit. And maybe your monkey pox will have passed by that point. How are you feeling, by the way? Well, I, I'm certainly hoping so, because, uh, you know, I've got a lot of work i got to do this week. A lot of talk. I've actually got a speaking engagement coming up Wednesday night. I, I, I better have a voice for that. Ooh, I've got one coming up uh, as well at the Schulich School of Business. We're going to talk about how to be a better TV interviewee. Oh, interviewee. Okay, yes. so I'm speaking to uh, how men can be better leaders at the Halton Board of Education. Fantastic. Yes. Thank you very much again, Devin. Uh, because you are this week's uh, podcast co-producer, uh, just like a real Hollywood production, you just open your wallet and you get a credit on the big show, and we will send you the uh, suitable for printing off and framing and hanging in your parents' basement, the album art for this particular week's show. Thank you to everybody who contributes. We really appreciate it. Uh, we don't know why you do it, but we're not going to question your motivations. Geeks and Beats update, uh, courtesy of Amber Healy, on the honeymoon's over at Tidal already. Yeah, they have fired uh, a number of people, including the CEO. I guess Jay-Z has come in and cleaned house. What I really don't understand is that Jay-Z purchased the company for $56 million a while back and then had the big launch uh, a couple of weeks ago. You would think that you would have come in as the new owner and cleaned house at the beginning. But what he's done is he's purchased the place, done the big uh, the launch, and then fired everybody, including the CEO. That seems to be seems to be kind of a, a bass backwards way of doing things, don't you think? Usually, when an acquisition goes well, the uh, guy at the top who helped usher in the new owners does tend to pull the ripcord on his golden parachute towards the end, but it's never described as fired. It's usually described as, well, he did a good job. It's time for him to move on. He's got nothing else to do here. But that, along with 25 other staffers, suggests somebody's not impressed with the execution over there at uh, the company. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised considering how much blowback they got on this. Ben Gibbard, who's the singer for Death Cab for Cutie, told the Daily Beast, Amber Healy's reporting, that he says, quote, I think they totally blew it up by bringing out a bunch of millionaires and billionaires and propping them on stage and having them all complain about not being paid. Yeah, this was one of the worst rollouts 
in terms of public optics ever. Um, Marcus Mumford from Mumford and Sons is also not very happy. They wouldn't have joined Tidal even if they had been asked. And uh, so we're starting to see a number of bands come out against the whole Tidal concept because it seems like a service of the one percenters for the one percenters. Right. The fact that if you're with Tidal, there is no free streaming music service. You have to pay or you get nothing. Are you getting emails from them asking for you to sign up? They have. I'm on that list. Yep. I get two or three. Yeah, me too. And what's interesting is that the one I looked at, I've deleted everyone that has come since, but the one I looked at had negative billing options. So you could try it for seven days. And then if you wanted to quit, all you had to do was say quit rather than uh, otherwise they would tap me for for 20 bucks a month or nine bucks a month or whatever it was. It's the gym model. Well, it is. I I decided that I was uh, no negative option billing. Uh uh. As soon as you offer me that, I'm out. Geeks and Beats writer Shane Alexander has a GNB update on the future of FM radio. If you live in Norway, FM radio will go dark come 2017. And he looks into the possibility of this happening in North America, too. Yeah, the the answer to that question is uh, it is never going to happen. Um, Norway embarked on this transition from FM to digital audio broadcasting, DAB radio. Uh, more than a decade ago. In fact, it might have been 15 years ago when DAB was in its infancy. At the time, Canada and the United States were also testing the possibilities of DAB. Uh, Canada tried and tried and tried to push it through in North America. The United States did not want to have anything to do with it because they said that the DAB frequency somehow impinged on certain military frequencies. So rather than going ahead with DAB, they launched something called HD Radio, which has been a colossal failure in the United States. Canada eventually abandoned DAB, shut down all the transmitters, and uh, we've moved away from it. We decided that DAB is not the future. However, there are countries like China... Australia and a number of countries in the in your in Europe including the UK and Norway who have really tried to make DAB a thing uh, it hasn't really worked if you go back a number of years uh, the BBC was going to shut down a number of DAB broadcasts that they were doing but uh, there was some public outcry against one or two stations so they were saved DAB has not been the savior of radio Uh, And remember that this is a technology that was conceived of and rolled out before there was this thing called the Internet and smartphones and LTE and Wi-Fi. So I don't really understand the point of DAB. Norway can go ahead and try and, you know, wipe out FM radio as much as they want. But it seems to be a little bit redundant now that we have smartphones. DAB will take over on uh, for FM in part because the FM frequency itself has other uses beyond being used as frequency modulation radio. Do you know why there is no channel one on your television and that TV starts with channel two? Military frequencies. Channel one is the entire FM radio band. Oh. Want to write for the big show? Go to geeksandbeats.com slash newsroom to learn about how you can be a part of the world's most popular podcast. Do it for the glory and the love of the game. If we paid you any less, you'd be paying us. Geeksandbeats.com. 
One of my favorite things on Geeks and Beats is you finding the most bizarre and unnecessary gadgets in the world. There's something called the universal record. Basically, what you do is you pump a digital signal into it, and it turns that digital signal into something that sounds like a crackly, poppy vinyl record. Yeah, it's, it's basically a record that's probably about 10 records thick that w could, in fact, sit on your turntable, and it's designed to do so. You take the stylus from your turntable, put it down on top, and the Bluetooth-based trans uh, receiver will play music but in a vibration only form that then gets picked up by the needle on your stylus you don't actually spin the record the platter doesn't spin at all but it does give off the necessary vibrations to give you the same sound if you in fact start spinning the turntable it will give you that crackly sound as well so it's a 21st century version of a turntable. Well, the turntable experience, I guess. Yes. They call it a kinetic spectacle. Uh, I don't really understand why you would pay for this sort of thing, because if you've got a turntable, chances are you've got a record. So why don't you just save yourself the expense of this Bluetooth device, put a record on, and crackle and pop yourself to your heart's content. Because, like you, maybe all of your albums are stored in the basement somewhere. You've long since converted them to MP3, or you've bought the MP3 versions of it, but you still want that turntable experience with that warm hum that comes with the transfer of vibrations through a needle that get amplified. But you're still playing in a compressed MP3. You're just, you're just dirtying up that sound even more. You're not necessarily experiencing the vinyl... Uh, you don't get the vinyl experience from it. What you get is a crappy, a crappier MP3 experience. Have you not seen this this video with Jesse England and his hipster beard? This is clearly not meant for you. It's meant for people who want to pretend they're you. I, I, I guess. Um, good luck, Jesse. <laughs> I, 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 I won't be buying one because I don't see the point. You going to buy the new Guitar Hero now that it's coming back? It does look pretty cool. See the new uh, the new controller that this thing has? No. Oh. Listen, this is quite a bit different than what we saw before. It, uh, it, it looks much more realistic. It's much more of a, of, a, of a live sort of experience. The reviews have been excellent. And I'll tell you what I'll do is, is I'll, uh, I'll, I'll post the trailer on the website and you can see what it actually looks like. This, see, I couldn't get the hand of the hang of the original Guitar Hero because my, 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 I, it, I just did. You got big paws. Is that what the problem is? I do. I got big, big fat sausage fingers. And they really didn't, uh, you know, as, as somebody who played the drums for a living, uh, my whole thing was using my limbs, not my individual digits. So I never really could get the hang, like the, the motor skills hang 
of Guitar Hero. And the, the neck of the Guitar Hero with the buttons, they were just big, what, three or four big fat buttons themselves. This looks more like a, a proper fretboard. It does. I mean, the controller looks fantastic. And, you know, I might have a better chance of playing this than, than uh, I would have playing something else. I thought music-based video games were gone. I thought that was so early 2000s. Oh, they, they, they were gone. And, you know, Guitar Hero and, and um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Rock Band? Yep. Um, they, they, they both completely cratered after having years of exponential growth. So they're trying to bring back Guitar Hero in this new form with this new controller, with this new experience, this new live experience thing. Uh, to, to resurrect the whole idea. I'm just looking here for a, a sense of the decline of the video game genre. In 2009 through 2015, Wikipedia says Guitar Hero was largely in decline towards the tail end. In Activision's 2010 fourth quarter financial report, they outright disbanded the Guitar Hero business and announced that they had absolutely no plan to develop the 2011 version, citing, quote, the continued decline in the music genre itself. Yeah. Now, um, a lot of bands and a lot of managers and a lot of music publishers uh, were very disappointed in that because some of their clients were making a tremendous amount of money. I had heard, and I can't substantiate this, but I had heard that Aerosmith made more money from licensing their music to Guitar Hero and Rock Band than they did from selling albums. They made a tremendous amount of cash from that. I can imagine, particularly for those sunset type of bands like that. I'm amazed you 2 didn't really get in on the act as well. No, I'm sure they were approached, but for whatever reason, they decided they declined to participate. But a lot of bands made a lot of money on this because Rock Band and Guitar Hero came along at a time when... Uh, the royalty checks began to get smaller and smaller and smaller. It used to be that if you were in a band, like a successful classic rock band, let's say, you could pretty much guarantee that you would go to the mailbox every six months and you would get a really fat royalty check because your record sold again and again and again. I mean, every Doors album sold between one and two million copies a year. The Beastie Boys' License to Ill album was the top-selling catalog album for years and years and years. But now, when the, when the internet came along and uh, physical products started going into decline and piracy picked up, these royalty checks that had been coming, these annuities, these, these, these pensions... Uh, began to dry up. So this is why you see like uh, bands like um, Aerosmith and the Eagles and some of these other classic rock acts go on the road again and again and again because, you know, they've got a, a lifestyle to feed. They've got a revenue stream that they need to uh, maintain and they're not getting it from the sales of physical records anymore. So uh, something like uh, Rock Band and Guitar Hero offers them a licensing opportunity to make a tremendous amount of money if these... these uh, games are as successful as they're supposed to be. One of the genres that managed to survive, as you saw the playable interactive versions decline, was the dance versions. My daughter's got an Xbox One, and she is hooked on Dance Party. Really? And the neat thing about this one is that well, because the camera, the Kinect uh, camera follows you and, and grades you based upon how well you're dancing along with whatever it is is on the screen. Wait, do you have a Kinect camera in your house? Yes. Ooh. I know. I got to point it at the wall when I'm not using it. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it creeps me out to no end. Originally, Microsoft wasn't going to put a software off switch on the thing, and people freaked out, and eventually they did. But I'm not convinced that that's guaranteed. you got to unplug the damn thing yeah, because yeah. it listens to you. But the, the, the neat thing was, was that my daughter got really into this, and the, the camera records the kids doing their little dance moves, and then at the end stitches it together in a high-speed rock video and plays it back <laughs> for them. Oh, cool. It's adorable. Um, and because this is the 21st century and it's connected to the Internet, you can then share that on Facebook and Twitter with your friends and family and all of that. But the musicians that were in there were some pretty high name musicians. All the most popular ones were in there, including Lady Gaga. So they're clearly still making cash just so long as there's a dance component to the music as well. I didn't know about that particular game. But then again, I'm not a gaming console kind of guy. Yeah, and I don't see you getting up there trying to do the same moves as Lady Gaga. The last thing you want to see is a stitched together video of me dancing. You cannot <laughs> unsee that, and it would be hazardous to your to your to your head. Do they have auto tune for dancing? Oh God! It, listen, I'm a drummer, and as my wife says, drummers don't dance. And uh, I danced at our wedding, and she says, I will dance in her grave, and then that'll be it. We took dancing lessons for my first dance. No, you didn't. Did you own? You did not. We did, because we, we, did, we did it. We did an old Scottish style dance. <laughs> <laughs> My wife said to me, lead like you've never led before. And I'm like, oh, God, you are a good husband. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher and the Bell Media Radio Network. BBC are to make a Doctor Who movie according to hacked Sony Pictures emails released by WikiLeaks. Hello, sweetie. Danny Cohen, the director of BBC Television, claimed that the popular TV series will become a film under an eight-year plan to keep the franchise alive. I like the bit when someone says it's bigger on the inside. But the show's team want to wait until the time is right to give the Doctor the Hollywood treatment and have made their feelings very clear on the matter, one Sony email reveals. I do miss Papa Buttons. A Hollywood version of Doctor Who could be extremely profitable for the BBC, but risks ruining the brand if it's done badly. Mr Cohen claims there is tremendous interest in a Doctor Who film and says there has been pressure to make it from BBC Worldwide, the company's money-making arm. Mr Cohen says the film won't happen in the next year to 18 months, but it is expected to happen after that within the eight-year horizon. Phil Loftus, Geeks and Beats, London. You're the only member of the Geeks and Beats team who's actually had a real tour of Abbey Road Studios. Yes, I had a friend named Carol, and Carol worked for EMI Records in the UK. And Carol was kind enough to set up a, uh, a private tour for me and a buddy to go through Abbey Road Studios, which of course is owned by was owned by EMI Records. So we started in Studio 3, where Florence and the Machine was working on the album that would become their ceremonials record, and I touched all her stuff. It's
Then we moved into Studio 2, which is the famous studio where Oasis and the Beatles and Pink Floyd and Muse and a whole bunch of other people uh, did all their great records. And there was an upright piano on the side and had a, uh, a sign on it saying, Lady Madonna Piano, Do Not Touch, which, of course, I, I touched. <laughs> And then we went into Studio One, which was absolutely huge. And there was a 65-piece orchestra set up there. And they were doing, putting the finishing touches on the soundtrack of the, uh, the Harry Potter movie that was out at the same time. And it was absolutely fascinating to walk through this giant, giant facility and seeing all this gear. I mean, the, 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 there was the new gear in the studios, but then in the hallways, they had this ancient recording gear just lined up. And you touched it and you wanted to know, you know, who used this and what records were made, what legendary records were made using this recorder and, and, and this piece of outboard gear. And I, I took a bunch of pictures while I was there and I, I tried to explain to people how magical it is to walk in the front doors of Abbey Road Studios and then through all these, these crazy, unbelievable studios with you know the, the the memories and the music and the ghosts that must rely there that must live there and uh, when I saw that Abbey Road had created this very cool virtual tour with help from Google and with it's a guided tour it's, it's actually the same tour I had Huh. Uh, except that you could do it virtually. It is really, really good, and you can do it on your on your uh, on your computer. Put on a set of headphones to do it properly because you know they've mixed the audio for this very, very well. And you can go through all the studios that I went through, and you can see all the stuff that I did. And it's it's like I'm babbling because it's it, it was just one of those great things that I've been able to do, and and now everybody can do it. One of the neat things too in Studio 2 is you can pretend to be a sound engineer by experimenting with the J37, which is the four-track tape machine that was responsible for most of the Beatles uh, albums, including Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. If you're in Studio 3, they've got a microphone collection, including one designed in the 1930s which they still use, a dynamic EMI HB1E. There's a ribbon mic in there from the 40s. We've talked about this as well. And then the all-important, one of the most popular mics in the world, the U47 by Neumann. Neumann. <laughs> Great German microphone. Uh, getting back to Studio 2, the control room actually is on the second floor. And there's a window that overlooks this big room. And you actually have to go down a, a flight of stairs to get to the floor of Studio 2. So you're looking down. If you're in the control room, you're actually looking down on the musicians playing. And it's, it's a very big room. It's about the size of a basketball court. And if you want to, you know, isolate various instruments and musicians, you have to bring in these big walls and baffles and everything. But it's, uh, you know, to sit there, as I did behind the console, looking down over that room, and you think, my God, this is, this is where George Martin sat as the Beatles recorded the White Album in Lonely uh, Sgt. Pepper. And this is where, you know, uh, Alan Parsons sat when he was helping Pink Floyd record Dark Side of the Moon. And you can do 
do that with this tour. It's it's very, very cool. And I encourage everybody. Uh, well, I'll post the link and you can have a look at it. And you just, it's just so much fun. They used over a thousand HDR photos to make the tour. Are you familiar with HDR, high dynamic range? Yeah, I got it on my phone. No, you think you got it on your phone. Anyone who's got a DSLR, a digital SLR camera, makes a real HDR image. You're... All right, fine, whatever. Okay, the, the point being is an HDR image is multiple shots of the same scene taken at different exposures so that you still can see into the darkened corners as well as you can see into the brightest brights. And so using all of those photos, you get this three-dimensional feel to everything as you look around, knowing that you can see into areas that otherwise you couldn't. Go do it. You'll have a great time. Nine songs your parents definitely had sex to. Oh, God. Do I have to click? Oh, I clicked on it. Oh, no. <laughs> There's no turning back now. No, no. Well, it depends on how old your parents are. That's right, because these were uh, nine tracks released between the years 1977 and 1983. Uh, Herb Alpert's Rise, described by some e-cards as the smooth jazz of this proto-Kenny G. Yeah, that's true. Before there was Kenny G, before there was Chuck Mangione, there was Herb Alpert. Seals and Crofts, Summer Breeze. Absolutely. Early 1970, 72, as a matter of fact. Probably required playing for any wedding at any point in 1972. I think so, yes. Um, the one that I, I, I guess I'm just going to have to shrug on this. I, it doesn't do anything for me, and I don't know that it would do anything for the ladies. But Kenny Rogers, Lady. Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor, and I love you. You have made me what I am. That was a really big song for him. People forget how big a star Kenny Rogers was. Between about 1977 and 1984, 85, he was absolutely huge. And Lady was his big ballad, and people freaked out over it. Charted more than 120 single hits across a variety of music genres. And uh, as a matter of fact, topped the country and pop album charts for 200 individual weeks in the United States, selling more than 100 million records worldwide. Yeah, he was big. I remember seeing him. I had to go. He uh, was, um, it was an in-the-round concert at the Winnipeg Arena. And of course, we can't talk about Kenny Rogers without taking a shot at his plastic surgeon. Oh, God. Kenny, what did you do? Did you get too close to the roaster? He's 76 years old now. Mm. I almost said 76 years young. I hate it when people do that. No, no, it's, it's kind of, you're old. Uh, of course, 1983, Donna Summer, Love to Love You Baby was a huge hit, even though... Wait, that was not 1983. Love to Love You Baby was 1977. What? what oh, t time to look it up on the Intertron. Trust me. 76 or 77. Okay, we're, 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 we're testing you here. 76 or 77. And the year was... 75. Okay, 75. Yeah, Split that, the difference. Yeah, that was one of the very first big disco hits. It was sampled in TLC's I'm Good at Being Bad. I remember hearing that song for the very first time thinking, my God, where did they get that recording? And what does this woman look like? Uh, Exile, Kiss You All Over. I remember this was either... This was fall of 1976, I think. 
And I remember it being somewhat scandalous because what do you mean kiss you all over? Bonnie rates something to talk about on the, this list, which suggests you are right when you say that they're stretching with this. Peaches and Herb reunited. Of course, that one's got to be on the list. And Captain and Tennille do that to me one more time. Really? Really, if your parents had sex to do that to me one more time, you have the uncoolest parents in the history of parents. That was a massive song for both Captain and Tennille. I know, and now they're divorced. So if he's been demoted from Captain, what is he now? He's, he's, he's been drummed out. <laughs> Clearly the pooches in the background are none too keen on this list. They do not like the Captain and Tennille. Uh, hey, the, the one that uh, really drew attention to me was uh, from 1983, and it was uh, f- the theme from Octopussy, Rita Coolidge, All Time High. My very first date was to see Octopussy in 1983, age 12. Really? All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour or two. Had no intention. I took Tammy to see the movie and we sat up front, like right up front. Of course you did. As two 12-year-olds would go, hey, you know, let's let's do what our parents wouldn't let us. Let's sit up front. Now, had it been three or four years later, we would have sat at the back. That's right, because, well, that's where it was darker and more private. Well, thanks for that, Professor. Where were you in 1983 when I needed that advice? <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.